wanted to belong so badly to something, living isolated as we did. So I decided that, well, I guess I'll just belong to nature. That'll be my world, my community, so to speak. And I've never looked back. That's been my orientation since a little child. Uh, as long as you stay connected with, with uh, nature and all the other beings, you're never lonely. You're always part of something bigger than yourself. And uh, if you let it take care of you, it can take care of you in amazing ways. But in turn, you have to take care of it as well. You have to protect nature mm -hmm. so it can be there for you. I have become a real advocate of, of the idea that we're all in one neighborhood on this planet and every being has equal rights. Mm -hmm. And that's not something I read or made up, but something I totally experienced in my life. That was Mossy Kilcher. She's a homesteader, a musician, and an ornithologist. When she was young, she was afraid of nature. It was just so big and there were so many ways to die. But the more time she spent outdoors, the better she understood it. Making music and recording bird songs helped too. She realized that it wasn't about taming the wilderness or dominating nature, like her father believed. It was about living in unison with it. That if you take care of it, it will be there for you when you inevitably need it. Understanding her place in nature helped her understand her role in it. For example, she found that if she sat still for long enough, she became invisible, and she could see and listen to nature doing its business all around her. She says that this was a sobering thought, that everything is important, not just her. She recently released a book, a memoir, that focuses on her upbringing, homesteading in Alaska before it was a state, living off the grid and off the land. They hunted and they gathered. It was a self-sufficient lifestyle that her father sought out, and he found it in Alaska, a place where he believed he could live simply. They settled on land, about 15 miles from the nearest town, and accessible only by a trail in the forest, or on the beach at low tide. They used horses and a wagon to transport goods back and forth. Mossy says that she wanted to share all of this because it's what led her to another way of looking at life, another way of looking at the world, that everything matters and we need to be good, thoughtful stewards of the planet. It's a connection with nature that she has applied to every aspect of her life. So here she is, Mossy Kilcher. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum, dedicated to exploring Alaska and the Circumpolar North through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and, and future. future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. I feel like your music is still relevant. And according to a New York Times article from 2020, is even seeing a resurgence. Why do you think that is? Well, hmm. oh, I think that if music is authentic, regardless of what kind of music it is, if it's authentic, I think that right there probably would be a reason why some music never gets old, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, folk music blues, western music, whatever, um, 
perhaps because people are also trying to find connection with nature, you know, in this day and age, uh, trying to reconnect with their environment more. Maybe there's a longing there. I think that is also why their music could be relevant, possibly. I wonder if you've thought at all about why people might be wanting to reconnect with nature right now. Well, I think that everybody really wants to. They're just not aware of it. Mm. And then they get around nature and they realize, oh, wow, this is what I've been missing. How do I do this? Partly because we've become such a technological, we're living inside technology so much these days. And Mm -hmm. I remember when I was a little girl, I dreamed of being able to connect with people all over the world with some magic gadget like we have today, the iPhone. Who would have thunk, right? (laughs) But now it seems like those very connecting gadgets actually in some ways divide people more than uh, they, they take them away into their own little bubbles instead of realizing we're all part of a bigger world out there. I always thought that devices that would help you connect the world in a way that music, for example, connects people all over the world, mm-hmm. uh, actually who would have thought that it actually also divides people and takes them away from nature. Yeah. Yeah. So when you were a kid, you you didn't even think of that. That didn't even cross your mind that this piece of technology that could connect us could also divide us. Exactly. Well, technology-wise, um, oops, there's my doggy in the background okay. letting me know. She's a, she's somebody too. <laughs> uh, no, I think that um, the technology that I grew up with was um, pretty Stone Age, you know. Basically, it was, um, it was just... Um, nothing. When we got our first telephone, it was a party line. And that was seemed like, you know, the most amazing thing on the planet to be able to talk to people over distances. And uh, the radio was the only way that you ever got news and information. And paper, books, things like that. And so everything that came after that seemed like an amazing, wonderful, wonderful way to, you know, connect with them other people, mm-hmm. but it didn't actually help you connect with uh, with nature. And I grew up in a place where you had to depend on nature for survival, but it still was the settler way of looking at life, like, um, you know, taming the wilderness, you know, dominating nature to your way of thinking, you know, p- cutting trees down. All these things without thinking about, wow, you know, but that I grew up more like an indigenous person, I sort of got to experience very early on that there was more to existence than just living off of things, that you had to live with things and to survive as well, mm-hmm. and, and even to thrive, to, to, to be to belong. I wanted to belong so badly to something, living isolated as we did. So I decided that, well, I guess I'll just belong to nature. That'll be my world, my community, so to speak. And I've never looked back. That's been my orientation since a little child. Uh, as long as you stay connected with with uh, nature and all the other beings, 
you're never lonely. You're always part of something bigger than yourself. And uh, if you let it take care of you, it can take care of you in amazing ways. But in turn, you have to take care of it as well. You have to protect nature mm-hmm. so it can be there for you. I have become a real advocate of of the idea that we're all in one neighborhood on this planet and every being has equal rights. Mm-hmm. And that's not something I read or made up, but something I totally experienced in my life. Hmm. Yeah, it's coming from experience and and from love, you know, love of nature. When did you first learn that nature can take care of you? Well, for some reason, when you grow up in a family, big family like ours, there's always, you know, struggles. There's competition with siblings. I had seven siblings, the eldest of seven, of eight. And uh, there's, you know, people can let you down uh, or not be there for you. But nature is always right there. It never goes away. It's always right there. And uh, it's not just there for refuge, but there for learning, for insight, for for adventure, for excitement, for everything that a kid would ever want, you know, for mm-hmm. that's how it takes care of you in those ways. And those things never go away. They're with you for the rest of your life. Yeah. You can count on it. I read that when you were a kid, you were afraid of nature. Why were you afraid of it? Well, you grow up learning to be scared, you know, that bears are dangerous, for example, or it could swallow you up if you don't know how to survive in it, or you could freeze to death. There's a thousand ways you could, let's say, die out there. Yeah. And then I found out that if you really get to know how to get around with and in nature, it's not as dangerous as you think uh, at all. In fact, even the opposite could be true. So that is a very interesting thing that you're asking me because I was afraid because I was a tiny little girl, right? And so naturally I didn't want to be lost in the forest. Then one day I realized I could never be lost. It was quite an amazing thought. Do you remember that day that you realized that you could never be lost in there? Yeah, I remember it. I figured that somehow, some way, that as long as I knew how to adapt and be there, sooner or later I'd find my way out again. Um, If I just looked around me and just was aware, totally aware of where I'm going, what I'm doing. Uh, So I learned to be super, super aware of my surroundings. Mm -hmm. And that enabled me to actually look at everything really closely like, well, why is that here and what's that doing there and why is this an animal acting like this? What am I doing to the environment as I'm walking through it? For example, I found out if I sat still for quite a while and became invisible, well, nature was going around doing its business quite well without me. And that thought struck me like, wow, I'm not important. <laughs> well, <laughs> Oh, oh dear. <laughs> and it was a very sobering thought. Yeah. And then it was also a comforting thought because I realized that for the first time in my life that 
everything's important, not just me. It was an eye-opener. In your new memoir, there's a lot about your life on your homestead. I was wondering if you could describe your homestead to me. The way I grew up, you mean? Where I was raised? Yeah. Well, it was way far out in the woods, about 15 miles from the nearest town, accessible only via trail in the forest or on the beach at low tide with the horses and wagon, which was how we transported goods back and forth. And we pretty much lived off the land, gathering, hunting, planting things. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I realized that from that day forth, the, the beauty of it is I feel I can survive anywhere thanks to my upbringing. Just drop me somewhere out in the woods and I can probably make it really fine. It's a great, it's a great feeling to have inside, you know? Yeah. Uh, that self-sufficient lifestyle is why my father came to Alaska and settled here because he wanted to live simply away from civilization. Um, and so we grew up kind of like a odd little cult, you know, very okay. way out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> but I felt lonely and isolated from other people. I wanted to have friends and I wanted to um, have kids to play with our age. Mm -hmm. So we became our own little, our own little community. And I was so wanting to have community that I made all the animals in the woods and all the birds, you know, my family. And I invented games and I made up villages in the woods. And, mm -hmm. and Winnie the Pooh was my mentor. You know, I thought <laughs> Winnie the Pooh was even to this very day. I just yeah. became 80 this year. But I will never, ever outlive the Winnie the Pooh model of, of, of living your life. In other words, Christopher Robin is kind of, overseeing and charge of protecting, if you will, the forest. Mm -hmm. And the animals are going around doing their thing. And they're all kind of having their playing and their little lives. And that's how I saw the forest. And I saw myself kind of as Christopher Robin going out there and making sure everybody's okay out there. Yeah. <laughs> and still, my current place where I live very much has that feeling and I have actually purposely created that vibe on my own property in Homer so when guests come to visit me they almost feel like they're going back in time to some childhood fantasy land and brings out the kid in all of us and sort of the magic uh, that that kind of way of being you know it's kind of everybody wants that in their life they just think they have to be grown-ups now. It's such a bummer. Anyway, but I didn't really grow up like that. I grew up a very responsible little child, having to be, you know, do grown-up things at a very early age. So whenever I could, I just played hooky, took off in the woods, and just decided to be one of the wild creatures out there. So. You know, when you sat down to write that book, write your memoir, what motivated you to write specifically about that? Well, I thought that, of course, aside from the fact that it's a very unique way to, that I grew up, mm -hmm. but my take on it 
as I remember it. And there was a lot of, you know, sad times, hard times, difficult, lonely times, all these things. Uh, I think I'm writing it because I want to share how I basically turned my childhood into another way of looking at life, another way of looking at the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone has unique childhoods, but I specifically wanted to share the fact that connecting with nature was something that I took with me throughout my life wherever I went, and it happened during those years. It was like how it came to be, what experiences, what adventures uh, got me to that place where I am now, no matter where I've lived, I've always lived by that um, education, if you will, of mm -hmm. growing up the way I did. Not, not the settler, not, you know, any, every, a lot of people are homesteaders and want to live simple and live off the land. But out of it came my philosophy or my belief that, that the only thing that really is going to quote unquote save the world, I guess, is living with the land, mm -hmm. totally with it, um, wherever you may be, whatever land you might be on. And every single piece of land can can be lived on that way, actually, as a neighborhood rather than as a piece of real estate, you know, that serves only us. Because there are so many other animals and creatures and butterflies and bees and birds that totally are part of that piece of land, too. Are there any specific pivotal childhood adventures that stick out to you? Oh, wow. Uh quite a few there was one where i found this little axe in the middle of the wilderness next to a creek where a bear paws had been in in the mud i was 12 and uh my dad was one of these people who was always carrying an axe around wherever he went he just lived by the axe the axe was his survival tool and i learned how to use one really early so there i find my own little axe <clears throat> excuse me in the middle of nowhere, and I realized that I was born to be a trailblazer. <laughs> mm, okay. It was kind of one of these little moments that come to you, and I figured I could do anything from then on, because I had this little axe by my side. <clears throat> Isn't that funny? Yeah, that's great. There's another one where, well, there's numerous adventures where I, you know, run into bears and all these stuff, but my main, my main eye-opener was when I was four and my father showed me a little bird nest he'd found in a bush and I looked in that little cute beautiful gorgeous perfect nest with its little eggs and I realized that there were other families living around me mm -hmm. and and we were not alone in the woods there were other families out there it was such an eye-opener for me and it changed my life because Ever after that, I've been looking for bird nests ever since. It's been my obsession, if you will, to find bird nests because it's like a door that leads to other doors and that leads to other doors. And the door of finding a bird nest for me was the realization that there was somebody's home as well, besides ours. Mm -hmm. And what was that home? 
looking like, what it did consist of, I found out over time that birds um, establish little homesteads around their nests and they sing boundaries. And yeah. by their song, you can tell where the bird nest is. And on and on, just a whole exploration of things that I would never have thought otherwise. Uh, what a bird song means and why it sings and, and what it takes to establish a little bird nest. How do you protect it? Suddenly I was like, I was like Joan of Arc as far as going out and making sure that no horses or cows or people would trample a wild piece of woods where a bird potentially might have its nest. Because uh, I realized that, for example, long before the bird books talked about it, that this bird had flown thousands of miles just to get to this one little place to build its little nest and went through all this work and amazing migrations and everything just to get to this one little rose bush in our yard. I mean, what an honor, right? I mean, yeah. Why would I cut the rose bush down just because it's convenient, right? Mm -hmm. So that's my, it, these things sort of shape how you look at the world. One little thing can lead to a not much bigger insight and, uh, I don't know if I answered your question, actually. Yeah, no, you you um you led us right into a perfect area about birds, okay. and I wanted to ask you, you know, how long you've been documenting bird songs? I wanted to since I was a small child, but I didn't know how, of course. Mm -hmm. And as I learned more and more of the bird songs in the woods, I thought, well, how in the world am I ever? How would we ever remember those? Uh, who, who gets to hear them? Um, and I noticed they all sounded different. So that was exciting, different. Like, do people know that every robin has his own little unique song and stuff like that? Mm -hmm. So then, as soon as the first, you know, reel-to-reel, heavy-duty, clunky tape recorder with this weird mic came along, <laughs> I was out there tromping around, and all the screechy, scratchy, trompy sounds are in there, the wind and all the noises. There was very low-tech stuff, but at least I have some birds documented that actually right now are no longer singing here. Can huh. you believe this? No. So thank the Lord. I mean, I did it, right? Mm -hmm. for, for posterity. I don't know who's all going to be interested in that. Hopefully they will. And then, of course, came a, a more advanced re, uh, cassette recorder after some years, and then I used that one instead. And then came, you know, digital one. Mm -hmm. And now you have a little pocket size. Now the iPhone actually does a better job than any, any of those in the past. So yeah. it's amazing how how advanced and beautiful the technology has come for recording things. And I'm glad that I did with whatever device because some of these birds, and only through time do you notice that. It takes time to notice changes. Mm -hmm. You're aware that 30 years ago, you realize there's like 50% more birds singing out there, more birds out in the forest. Okay. They've dropped off dramatically. I mean, it's just wow. common knowledge there if you read up in the right, you know, the right magazine or whatever. But they have drastically disappeared. And so if at least I could, I felt all these years as well as uh, filming them now back in the day, there was only the celluloid, you know, monster cameras that you drag around with huge tripods. Mm -hmm. Nobody could afford that. Uh, 
unless they were rich. But I figured someday, I was hoping something would come along where I could just go out there and, and film birds. Well, guess what? Um, it all has happened. And so I have terabytes upon terabytes of film footage of birds um, doing their thing. Spent actually, you know, weeks in the forest um, crawling up and sneaking up on birds. And of course, nowadays, everything is um, super HD, National Geographic quality, and I can't compete with that. But still, I'm glad I have recorded every little thing I have because it's one of a kind. It can never be duplicated. Yeah. Uh, it's a value, I hope, of some kind to the world. And I did it just because I felt compelled to do it. I had a feeling that somebody needs to know they were there. That's about all I can say about that. Were there any birds that were more difficult to capture than others? Well, let's just say all the little tiny jobs, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> an eagle sitting on a rock for half an hour. I mean, you can practically, anyone could practically take a picture of that. So I was like into the challenge by getting those little tiny little brown and yellow little birds that flit through the leaves and you could hardly ever even see them with your naked eye. Mm -hmm. So I would find ways that I could you know, attract them or sneak up on them or find their favorite spot and spend hours just, you know, of footage, just maybe getting a couple of snippets of the perfect shot, film shot. And, uh, and during spring breeding season is the best time because that's when they are in one spot a lot and they like to show off and challenge others that they they're easier to grasp, mm -hmm. to grab, you know, sitting somewhere for a few minutes. But the little guys, I felt nobody had given them any attention. Uh, it's all about the big shorebirds and the eagles and whatever. And the little tiny guys have just as amazing, if not more so, lives. And I wanted to make sure that they also had, that they could be seen as equally amazing, important birds as the big guys mm -hmm. who get all the attention. So I gave the little underdogs as much attention as I could because <laughs> they already, they're the songbirds and they just saved my life over, over the years of just yeah. with their beauty and their joy, their music. When you go out to capture these bird songs, are these adventures that you go on or do you kind of have an idea where the birds are? I pretty much know where they are. Uh, in fact, some of them come back to the same general area year after year after year. And so I will go out there and say, oh, so-and-so's back. This is exciting. Mm -hmm. let's, get, let's, get, <laughs> let's get some more pictures of him. It's really amazing. It's like friends coming back after they've been gone all winter. And you don't quite know what plane they're going to be arriving on. And you, you're on pins and needles and you're out there just like wondering what's going on. Yeah. It's quite exciting, you know, when you get that involved with them. But sometimes it's just a, a scouting adventure, a road tripping around and going to see what's out there. You know, it's a little bit of both. It's just an adventure regardless, because it's you never know what you're going to run into or what you're going to get, what you're going to see. Mm -hmm. And back to the music aspect, 
uh, I have come up with all kinds of ideas and thoughts about the music in general, which of course, the music was there since time began with the birds, I mean, since birds began. And, and do you know that almost every poem or song from the folk songs from the past have birds in them or sing about birds or sing about spring? No, I don't think so. The, or about the lark and the trees or the sparrow at dawn or the, the, the birds singing in the morning. Or when you, when you really go through some of all these old folk songs, there's inevitably reference to birds or spring or nature in them. Mm. Uh, unlike today, where not a single song hardly ever references nature. Just something to something to 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 note. This is kind of the sign of the times. Yeah, yeah. We've just gotten so far from nature, mm -hmm. you know, being part of nature, being in nature, we're you know, so many of us are just in cities. Yeah, and that is one of the things about cities. Uh, that's why it's important to to balance all that out with with you know other kinds of emphasis on saving wilderness or parks or. Uh, and what I said about time is time cannot be replaced as far as something should take time to grow on you to learn about things. Um, become aware of them. I didn't know all these things at first. I just, over time, focused on them and became aware and, and then formed opinions and feelings about it mm -hmm. of my own. Uh, I try to incorporate them in my music or when I write about things. That's the, that's the stuff I really want to share the most, however I share it, about the importance of it. There's actually a, a community already out there. Mm -hmm. And people are already always looking for a community or for their kind or people who think like them or move someplace where they think they're going to feel more at home. But actually, there's a built-in community all around us. <laughs> it's an amazing, it's amazing. Like, the first thing I do when I go to a new new place, travel, I, I try to go out and find out what the what the community's doing, what kind of place am I in, you know? Where the cafes are, of course. <laughs> do you remember the last time that you did that, that maybe you traveled to a city for one reason or another and you're like, okay, I'm gonna go find that community? One thing, when we were in Switzerland for two years visiting, you know, the old country where my folks are from, we were living in, living in cities a lot. And Switzerland is a pretty much a beautiful, but very civilized and tamed country, but they have a lot of nature there. And I remember in the cities, there were lots and lots of birds nesting on the buildings or the apple trees in somebody's backyard mm -hmm. or uh, animals, you know, at night coming out and doing things. So I tried to figure out, you know, besides people, like what else is out there and, uh, you know, just wherever I go, like when I went to New Zealand once, um, the big thing there was that a lot of the native birds had disappeared because of introduced species. And um, they were quite hard to find some of them. But I wanted to see what they were like. And they had adapted so well to New Zealand, like flightless birds and things. Mm -hmm. And so here comes the human and thinks he's doing the land of favor by introducing uh, 
you know, a rat killer that they also introduced. And then that rat killer kills also the flightless birds. And, you know, we never think about too much about the consequences till it's too late and look back, you know. Mm -hmm. So the more awareness I think we can have about our actions, the better stewards we are of, you know, the planet. It's always almost, uh, it's always about too little too late, sadly, Bob. You've talked a lot about, you know, how important, you know, getting back to nature is, living kind of in unison with nature. I wonder, was there kind of a beginning, kind of an impetus where you were like, you know, as a civilization, we we need to get back to this? Or were you like that from a young age? I was like that from a young age. Okay. Totally like that. And then I got to see later that I was different. Oh, I, it was kind of a, a lonely journey for many years. I, I didn't know what to think. I was sort of looking for people who thought like me or felt like me. And I realized that, no, uh, they're not that many of us around, to be to be truthful, hmm. at least not to the extent, you know, that I was feeling it or, or thinking was important. And uh, so, yeah, that that's one of the things. Uh, when you find people, you know, kind of are on your wavelength, you really get excited, you know, like, whoa, <laughs> I'm not alone. <laughs> I'm not an oddball. I'm not weird. I, I do fit in someplace. Um, yeah, I finally gave up trying to fit in. That's like hopeless, hopeless quest, you know. Uh, a lot of heartache there. You just forget about that part of things. When did you stop trying to fit in? Mm, I think I was in my 30s. By the time I made my record, uh, my first, you know, my vinyl. Yeah. And uh, I was about, how old was I? About 35 years old. Had already had kids and a family, and I was... I was a building. I was in the middle of a, a building a community uh, near Anchorage, a place called Rainbow Valley, uh, and that's still existing today. The first of its kind in Alaska, where where a bunch of us built a community. It wasn't a commune. Right? It was it was more than that, but it was a homeowners association where we all pitched in together, lived off grid, and all that. Mm-hmm. And I've always been about community, whatever I've been, because without community uh, and feeling like you can relate with other people or nature, it's just, life just doesn't have any meaning for me. That's all. Can you tell me more about Rainbow Valley? Maybe starting off with how you went about setting it up? Well, it started out as looking for a beautiful place to live outside of Anchorage in the mountains where land became available. Mm-hmm. And so then, of course, you can't afford it when you're a young couple with kids. But then we brought other people in to buy into it, and it became, it, it became a, a growing concept as time went by, and more and more people contributed to it. It was kind of an organic thing. It had a basic, you know, vision, and then people just kept adding on to it and adding on to it, and... It does about a dozen families that still live up there have passed it on or sold it, but it has covenants, protections on it. 
and it's it's functioning quite well. Uh, it's it's a homeowner fancy houses. People live there part of the year. Some live there year round. All professional people who work in Anchorage, and uh, it's a little enclave in the middle of the state park. There. Yeah, my first husband we we conceived the idea, and then over time it um, it, bec it became a special place. And again, the birds, the birds and animals were one of the main things there that everybody needed to respect. That was one of the covenants. And do you think that it is different than it used to be? I think um, a lot of people can't afford to live that far away or always. It's not one of these living off the land places, mm -hmm. which is different than how I grew up. Being as that's in the mountains, it's in, near Anchorage, you know, it has a different different members than than my father dreamed of when he came to this country. He wanted to form a, uh, a self-sustainable community. Mm -hmm. That was his big dream that he envisioned. But between this reason and the war and the other reason and so forth, he was the last one to, he was the only one that managed to, to move to Alaska. And even after that, his personality was such he was an absolute brilliant visionary kind of man, and he actually um, helped write the Alaska Constitution. He was one of the fifty-five delegates back way back in fifty-five who wrote the Constitution for Alaska. So he was very uh, visionary and involved in in public affairs. But at first, we started out very isolated, and people who tried to come and live around us or with us. He had such a strong personality that he couldn't, you know, he couldn't make it work. Mm. And he was, of course, the typical, he was a very patriarchal kind of man, you know, dominating. And he, he treated the land like that, too. And I, right away as a kid, instantly rebelled against that, that form of thinking because as you treat people, you also treat the land. It, it's There's hardly any difference how you how you treat uh, people and how you treat the land, actually pretty much the same, you know? Yeah. So I immediately realized, wow, uh, it takes more than just strong visions and willpower and, uh, and brute force to conquer the wilderness kind of thing. Yeah. Wait a minute, uh, or an ax, right? <laughs> Yeah, it takes some finesse. It takes not even finesse. It's like, what's your purpose here? Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. You know, and finesse. But being a leader and a dictator are two different things, right? So he was sort of a top-down kind of guy, and I realized right away that you have to align yourself instantly mm -hmm. with, uh, with uh, who is in your circle. You, alignment. Aligning yourself with nature, aligning yourself with others, um, we're in the same boat together kind of thinking, who's going to paddle, mm -hmm. uh, who's going to be steering, you know, this kind of thing. It's not up to one person necessarily to decide. It's a collaboration. Mm -hmm. So I'm all about collaboration. It's that's the only way to, to achieve a satisfactory conclusion. And you know what's funny? Even my songs, when I wrote them as a kid, I wrote, you know, dozens and dozens of songs. There was only like 20 I had on the record, but I wrote so many more. And I always th 
thought that they weren't my songs. Like, I didn't want to take credit for them. And I still find it difficult to do that because, let's face it, I mean, where do they really come from? Mm -hmm. Somebody inspired them. Something, someone, a bird, a person, an experience. Uh, who's to say who owns it? Uh, I just happened to just write it down, but I would always like make sure that my siblings were given the credit. <laughs> when I wrote it down on a piece of paper, written by Mossy and Otz and Faye and Faye, uh, one of them, because I didn't want to take credit. It didn't feel right. Now, that makes no sense, but that's what I would think. And so, in a way, ownership is a very interesting concept. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Who owns what anyway, you know? Mm hmm Did your dad do anything in specific that made you rebel against his way of treating the land? Oh, yeah. I remember when I was 12. Oh, oh, two things. One of them was burning, burning land, right? Starting, starting wildfires. He would start wildfires like in the old days, all the homesteaders pretty much. That was a quick way to clear land, right? You mm -hmm. just burn it. Then you kind of work it from there. And it has its merits. It really does. But that was the days when there wasn't any of the houses around, right? Or there's like no fire trucks or anything. So whatever. But I had already discovered that there were other homes in the woods besides ours. And it was like, whoa, you killer. <laughs> you you t t tyrant. <laughs> okay. And he, he would say things like, well, the birds can always fly away. And I would try to prove to him, no, they can't. They got a nest there. What are you thinking about? You're burning their homestead. We'd come in, we'd come, we'd have screaming matches mm. about it. And the other one was, uh, I would hug a tree to keep him from felling it. I was the original tree hugger. Later, when I found out about tree huggers, I went, huh, well, hmm, of course, makes, makes sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I'd have, been, I'd have been one of those. <laughs> I'd have lived in a tree for four years. <laughs> <laughs> If I could have afforded, didn't have kids. Well, <laughs> uh, I'd have thrown a monkey wrench into the bulldozers, you know. <laughs> well, seriously. Uh, so then the other one was where there was this one tree that I figured was, uh, for some reason, I had this idea that we should have a spirit tree. I think I might have read some Indian folk tales about the great spirit or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. 
I decided we needed a spirit tree, me and my brothers and sisters. And we went on a scouting trip to find the perfect tree, right? Mm -hmm. Which was going to be our tree. And it was going to be our link with the forest. And it was going to tell us secrets. And it was going to help us understand. I mean, I had this whole thing made up, this whole religion. Yeah. All out of the sheer imagination. And finally, the omen came. There was a bird nest in the tree and a robin singing. And I said, that's the tree, right? So it's sitting there on a hill, surrounded by other trees. And my dad gets it in his mind to go and fell that entire grove of trees so he gets more hay fields or whatever. Hmm. And, oh, my God, this is bad. This is really bad, right? What are we going to do about it? So... That's the one time I stood up to him like big time. I went, Yeah. he was sharpening his chainsaw and we're getting ready to cut the trees down. And I said, well, this is one tree you cannot cut. And he said, why the heck not? And I said, because its name is Da Vici Da Bini and it's a spirit tree and that's a holy tree. And I went on and on and he looks at me like, what the heck is she talking about? <laughs> but you know, to his credit, he left that one tree standing. Really? Yeah. Okay. He he saw there was something going on here that even though he didn't get it, that he'd better not, you know, cross that line. And wow, that was a victory right there. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Isn't that a funny story? You know, I know we learn a lot from our parents more than we can sometimes remember. But do you remember anything your parents taught you that has always stuck with you? Oh, wow. I You got all day? I mean, oh, yeah. Well, my mother for sure, uh, my dad for sure. My dad taught me to question authority, which, of course, didn't work with him so well. Hmm. But it, generally speaking, to question the, the mainstream way of thinking about things, you know, think out of the box, be adventurous, try something new. Uh, you can do anything. You're a girl, so what? You could do anything even though you're a girl. No, he, he was really amazing that way. Uh, just don't give him any lip, right? Okay. <laughs> and then, because he was old-fashioned, he had, he had European cultural values that he couldn't shake. Not his fault. Mm. And uh, then his my mother uh, also taught me that Amazingly, she was an example of adaptation. Like, wow, she could, she learned to do so many things. She grew up in the city in Switzerland, right? She had no idea what she's getting herself into here. Yeah. And boy, she learned how to do everything from, you know, practically tanning hides, cutting firewood down, planting trees, horse, horses, cows, you know, making fantastic big garden to feed a whole big family. But the thing she taught me the most was things like, this too shall pass mm -hmm. when things got tough. Don't give up. Um, and a song, there's a song in everything. Mm -hmm. Just listen to the music. Uh, you know, just dwell on the positive. Uh, just things like that stayed with me all my life. I think it helped me cope with lots of things in life. And uh, she's the one who sang songs to us in the cradle. And um, the first thing I can remember is my mother singing, you know? Yeah. And we, we got to singing like, 
out in the open, like at the top of our lungs. And I figured, heck, somebody made all these songs up too. So let's, I can make up songs too. And there wasn't any uh, inhibition about music or singing or what kind of songs or, it was just part of life to sing. And I think actually, when you go to some of the older cultures and what how they live, music was always part of everything. Mm-hmm. Celebrations, everyday life, working in the fields, uh, traveling. You know, music has always been part of our of humanity. And uh, I think that's the one thing that still can connect everybody and ties everybody together is music. And I might add bird music. Uh, is one of those inspirational things as well that it has no borders. It has no allegiance to any particular place. It just is out there, you know, just so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Did your mom ever get a chance to listen to your album, North Wind Calling? Yes, she did, yeah. What did you oh, think yeah. about it? Oh, she was so proud of me. When I made my first little song as a kid, I made this little tiny little song up about nature and the woods and everything. And she just cried when I sang it to her. I was about eight, you know. And she just, she really encouraged me to sing. And she encouraged me to do whatever I wanted in life. She didn't have any plans for me, nothing laid out. She really came to America to live with my dad here because she really fervently believed that she needed to raise her kids in nature. That was her mission, Mm -hmm. to raise her children in nature. She told me that many, many times. And I'm so grateful for that. I can't even tell you how grateful I am. Beyond grateful. Why do you think that she wanted to raise her kids in nature? You know, I really don't have a good answer for that. Uh, Because she grew up, perhaps because... She grew up kind of in the city in Switzerland, but she spent a lot of time in the little villages where her ancestors came from. Mm. And she was just this creative kind of lonely little artistic young woman who who had big dreams. You know? mm-hmm. she, and she had a beautiful voice. She was going to be an opera singer someday. But then she came to Alaska instead. So she had this gorgeous voice. And uh, I just can hear her still singing on the wind, singing when I'm like three years old and she, she's playing the concertina and standing on a cliff in the wind with the seagulls crying all around us. And I remember holding onto her real tight. We're standing on this cliff and she's looking way down on the shore to see if my dad was coming home uh, from town. He'd been gone for days and he'd be coming down the beach at low tide with the horses and a wagon full of supplies. And she'd go down and look for him. And then when she saw him, she'd be singing up there on the cliff. I mean, it's this gorgeous picture in my head that I'll never forget. Yeah. It's very romantic. That is romantic. Oh, yeah. Well, I wrote a song about it. I haven't, of course, have it out yet, but I did write a song about that. It's not out yet? Well, I haven't got it on the airwaves yet. Doggone it. Okay. I better get busy. <laughs> I have so much yet to do. Haven't even yet begun. Is it going to be on your next album? Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And hopefully, hopefully sooner than later. I'm not getting any younger. Could you tell me about your next album? Well, I can't tell you too much, uh, actually. more It's more a vision. I have recorded some songs already, but I want to get more 
people into it. I want to get more instruments and more musical mm-hmm. uh, contribution and participation in it. And it's a little hard to find. Well, during COVID, everything kind of went, you know, went on a rest mode. Mm-hmm. So I'm slowly picking up again. I want to finish a bunch of stuff yet. That's what I want to do. And I hopefully it'll be more reflective music, uh, more about, you know, having experienced more things in life, having had children, having had experiences, having been traveling alone by yourself, oh, different kinds of things than that first album. Uh, more reflective, I would say. You drew the cover of your first album art, Northwind Calling, right? Yes, yes. How often do you draw? Well, I draw a lot. I draw all the time. I paint. I draw. I was, I've been thinking about making children's books because I like that kind of whimsical way of expressing yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I've thought about that, too. <laughs> I draw quite a bit, actually. And I'm always doodling, by the way. Even as we speak, I'm making all these fancy doodles here. Really? Could you describe them to me? Hmm. Wow. Well, they're mostly little circles and little flowers and little hearts and, and little trees and birds and, uh, well, just decorations, all kinds of strange things. And depending who I'm talking to, I make different doodles. There's a couple of times when I've talked to people and I make all squares and angles and I'm thinking, hmm. Wonder what that means. <laughs> What's going on in my brain right now that I feel yeah. I have to do that instead of making circles and little and little flowers. Hmm, interesting. So that sounds like maybe this conversation is pleasant so far. Very pleasant. In fact, I drew, in fact, I drew a yin and yang thing here for some reason. I wonder what that means. Huh. That's awesome. Yeah, isn't it though? And I think actually, come to think of it. Uh, I'm sort of in that part of my life where I look at everything like from two sides, like something could be really scary on one hand looking at it, especially changes and trying something new at my age. It seems more scary than it used to be because hmm. I have a lot. I only got the rest of my life left to lose before I had a whole lot of it there, but now it's just a little short part. Okay. And so I look at it from the perspective of, well, hmm, how do I make the most of my time? Am I wasting it? Am I going to lose something if I make too drastic a move? Lost a lot of things in my life, you know. Uh, but then I'm thinking, well, nothing ventured, nothing gained, blah, blah, blah. There's all these ways to look at things. So there's a downside to every downside. There's an upside. Mm-hmm. Well, in nature, for example, I realized I was sad a lot. And out there, no one around to judge you or tell you, you know, what are you, what are you, what are you crying about, young lady? I would just allow myself to cry when I felt happy, cry when I was sad, and or laugh when other people are maybe sad because I'd see a funny side of something. You know, mm-hmm. there's like freedom of expression is a full circle. And I'm not just like you. The later you grow up in this, you should feel this and you shouldn't feel that, mm-hmm. all this stuff. And I've always rebelled against against that as well. Um, But the flip side of joy is sadness in my 
experience, and you can't feel one without the other. It's like yin and yang thing. It's like you honestly can't feel true joy if you don't allow yourself to also feel true sadness. Uh, sometimes even possibly at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the thought, like a sunset can be so beautiful, but it can make you cry because it's going away, but you know it's going to come back the next day. So it's different than, you know, being gloomy or depressed or sorry for yourself. Just it's the, it's the awareness. I think this is the one thing that's never left me. Maybe it's because the birds would leave in the fall and the trees would lose their leaves. It's the sadness of things going away. Mm. And whoever says that isn't sad is lying through their teeth. <laughs> In my opinion. Yeah. And uh, people don't allow themselves to feel sad because it's a scary thing. And if enlightened people don't feel sad, right? Well, I say baloney to that because I think enlightened people allow themselves to feel sad uh, because that is the flip side of joyfulness. Not just you're like laughing kind of, you know, from the throat up kind of hee 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 ha ha, but real joy, like jumping out of your skin kind of joy, right? Yeah. And I love that feeling, and I don't ever want my joy to go away. But unfortunately, it comes with a price, and that's you can also be vulnerable then to sadness. It's a vulnerability, I guess, that most people wouldn't allow themselves, and I know that because many times I don't even want to go there either. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so some people say I'm melancholic or my music has sadness to it, but no, it's it's real feelings that I hope people can relate to it. It allows you to relate to it, you know? Mm-hmm. Do you think you'll draw the cover art for your second album? Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, or the book too. I, I don't want to... That's a personal thing, absolutely. Okay. Do you think there will be circles? There will definitely be circles in there somewhere. <laughs> 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 yeah. And I'm kind of, you know, I got to say, I'm thinking about what comes beyond after, right, in my life. And it's terrifying to feel like you're not going to exist anymore. Mm. It's really terrifying to me. I'll be honest. I think anyone who says it's not scary, just kind of, you know, unless they've got a really good religion they can hang their hang on to, which I don't really have. I just see things like, you know, a tree falls down and then it gives life to moss and then little mushrooms grow on it and little mm-hmm. birds live off of the bugs. You know, that kind of cycle. Yeah. So that's good enough. But terrifying the fact that uh, it may be you're not conscious anymore to experience things. That's the part that bugs me. That scares you the most? Yeah. But then I tell myself this fairy tale or my imagination takes me to a place where I'm thinking, wow. Maybe I'll be so conscious after that that I can just be aware of everything like I always long to be, like see every bird in the world like I always long to. Yeah. Uh, I can be everywhere at once, which was one of my childhood wishes, by the way. Oh, that's that's a pretty beautiful dream. Well, I really want that. I want to see everything. One, And I always thought, wouldn't it be something if you could see everything in the world? Because it wants to be seen. I always feel like it's my duty in fact, somebody once asked me, like, why do you think you're on Earth? You know, why are we here and stuff? And I thought, well, I'm here to witness. 
and I didn't say that lightly. I came up with that, you know, I'm here to see stuff. Uh, I want it to be seen because if it's not seen, is it really going to be real? I, I want to make things real by seeing them and by recording them. That is really my, my joy to think about that as my purpose. Uh, it's almost like an obsession, like to see as much as I can see. Mm -hmm. I read that your first album was actually written before Alaska was a state. Yes, it was. What's it been like to see the evolution of Alaska through so many decades? Wow, what a question that is. Uh, on one hand, as a child, I wanted, to, I wanted people to move into the neighborhood. I wanted to have neighbors and see, and see things, you know, mm -hmm. get populated, if you will. I saw the, I could only think about the good side of it. But as I saw the changes happening, along with it come the, oops, the downside, right? Mm -hmm. People build roads, they put forests down. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> and um, so I've been a real advocate of anything that, that tries to preserve wilderness because I know what it meant to me and I would hate for that to be gone for other people to experience. But you know what? Even if you don't experience it, I think there is a solace and a comfort in knowing it's just there. Mm -hmm. I get comfort knowing the tundra is up there, even if I never visit it. And if, uh, if the animals are doing their thing up there, that gives me great satisfaction and joy because that is what it's for. Uh, it's older than us and it got created. There's a balance up there and we so easily disrupt things. And as long as there's wildness, and I'm not saying that because I read that in a book. This is what I felt before I even read anything about it, is that as long as there is wildness, there is security. Wildness was always my security, so why wouldn't it be for others, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the change that has alarmed me the most is people's disregard uh, of that concept or not even knowing what that concept is. Like, it's resources, it's extraction, it's building, it's developing, it's utilizing, it's economy-oriented uh, thinking that bothers me the most because not that it can't happen, but if it's not taking respect into account, respecting the neighborhood and what it means in the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. you know, let's not even talk about climate change, that's a whole other, but just the neighborhood, that the neighborhood doesn't get destroyed. Mm -hmm. That's all I gotta say about that. How much do you think Homer specifically has changed or maybe stayed the same? Well, it's gotten very much more populated. Uh, and I remember when I was in high school, there was this phrase out there, well, you can't eat the view, right? Well, come to think of it, you can now. You get tourists out there on the pristine waters and the glaciers, and yeah, you can eat the view, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> Back then, it was like not a thing. And uh, I remember the kids couldn't wait to leave town and just go somewhere, go someplace where they could get down, get a life, right? Well, a lot of them came back later, back back to Homer, amazingly. Mm -hmm. But Homer is quite progressive in many ways. They're environmentally conscious for the large part. 
and partly because the view is and the landscape is fantastic and it you get tourists and guests to visit mm -hmm. so there's an incentive to preserve the area more than in some other places i think so we've been lucky like that and it's also great fishing place and all that that part of you know a population that that loves to get out on the water well come to think of it however that's also been a two-sided thing because it got overfished because I remember we used to just go out and catch giant king crabs with just a little line off the end of the dock, you know, off the boat. You just put bait down and in a couple of minutes you get a ginormous king crab. They vanished. Uh, a lot of fish have vanished or a lot of birds have vanished. Seabirds have vanished. So I've seen huge changes here environmentally that have just crept up. Like nobody notices them happening like you arrive, let's say, from the lower 48 and you settle at home and you think, wow, look at all the fishing. Boy, this is great. They should have been here like 50 years ago, right? <laughs> they would have noticed a decline and they would go, oh, my God, the fishing is terrible, they would say. Right? <laughs> depends, depends who arrives when, right? Yeah. The status quo now is what the status quo is, right? You don't miss what you never knew. Yeah, and you only know what you know. That's exactly right. You know, you don't miss what you never knew. As a woman, do you feel like your experience growing up away from civilization was different than the men's? Well, you know, indigenously wise, women are, are very much more regarded as a key component of, of, of the village and of the family. I mean, mm -hmm. even sometimes have to do things the men do, you know, go hunting if the guy dies out there in an ice floe or whatever. So... They are regarded and revered as a very important part of the survival of the, of the group, right? Mm -hmm. Well, in that way, I felt very important as a girl toward the survival of our family. I felt like very, very, uh, very, very important in that regard. But as a woman, not so much, mm. even then because that was in the 50s, 40s and 50s, right? And that was way before there was such a thing as equality and women's rights, way before that. So the minute I get out into the into the real world, I'm already seeing all this discrimination going on, like, holy moly, I mean, I can build a cabin. You, what do you mean I can't join the carpenter's union, you know? Mm -hmm. Or I can, I know how to catch fish. What do you mean I can't get on a fishing boat? I mean, you, you'd be surprised Every door was pretty much closed, that a guy could do it and a woman couldn't. It was very aggravating, to say the least. Yeah. So, you know, you can be a secretary or a teacher or whatever, not even a deckhand. I mean, good grief. So I was very ahead of my time in terms of what I could do, but not as far, I wasn't allowed as far as, you know, the culture. And so I experienced that firsthand that change over then to where women had more and more rights or more equality and and were looked at as wow they can do stuff too um and my nieces were able to get you know in their teens to get on fishing boats get on construction crews like wow you know it was just amazing yeah hats off to the to that um so yeah, I just experienced that whole 
you know, discrimination thing or that that whole thing. Um, but I wasn't resentful about it. I was just frustrated about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm really glad it changed. Uh, really, really glad. And it hasn't changed enough yet, actually. But And that, uh, you know, and still, there's so much discrepancies just all around. Yeah. And, you know, the patriarchal, old country, white guy attitudes, you know, offense, but it's it's real. Yeah. It's real. And uh, I got to the place where I don't care what anybody thinks. That's another, that's one of the benefits of getting older. Yeah. You really don't give a flying anything about what people think about you anymore. You can afford to speak out. What do you got to lose, right? And that's helpful to the younger generation, I think, to feel free to do that. Because if you just, you know, tuck your tail between your legs and don't stand up for values or say things when they should be said, you're not a very good example. Mm. I think it's everybody's responsibility to speak out loudly about whatever they strongly believe in. I think it's actually a duty to do so, especially I think when you're famous or because a lot of people look up to you, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and you can make a difference like that. I like to make the idea, I like the thought of making a difference. If I made just one little difference in people's lives or in an animal's life, you know, that's that's to me, I have to look at that as a success. Even if nobody ever knows about me, at least I've done that. And that is some, that's a goal, you know, that's a good worthwhile goal, I think. What would you like that difference to be that you make? Well, the equality of all beings. I know that's a big tall order. You know, not just women or minorities or or certain creatures, but all living things uh, have a right, equal rights for all living beings. But however that plays out, however that is interpreted or codified or written down, but as an actual belief, you know, Mm-hmm. I would like to work toward making that difference in some way. Because I grew up with inequality since I'm, you know, I, I saw it happening before my very eyes. And I'm very passionate about that subject. And I think one thing too is you can't become passionate about anything. You can't care about something unless you become you learn about something, you, you know it, you be, you're aware. Of. Mm-hmm. So the more we can see around us and be aware of, the more we can care about it, and then the more we can protect it. Mm-hmm. So it kind of a, uh, it's kind of a, a flow, a direction. You don't, just, you don't just automatically become passionate about something. It has to mean something to you to, to want to go there. And, uh, you know, for example, uh, it might make just a tiny difference, but I put uh, fish netting in front of all my windows, mm-hmm. my, picture, my picture windows, my big, beautiful glass windows with a great view. Well, guess what? Those are bird killers, right? Mm. A bird sees the sky there reflected and thinks, wow, I can fly, I can fly there and then bam, it's dead. Well, people mostly think, well, it's just a bird, right? It's not just a bird. What it is, 
It's the mate of a, another bird, and they have a nest, let's say, with four little babies needing to be fed, and now they will die. And so there is not just one less bird, but a whole tribe could be di dying off at that very instant. Mm -hmm. They will never fly south, never make new babies. The songs will die in them. Just imagine what you're killing there. You're not just killing a little bird. You're killing a whole world. Yeah. That's how I look at things, right? Kind of bizarre, but that's how I look at things. And why would anybody want to do that? Once they know about that story, I bet you, when I tell people that story, they go, oh, wow, I never even thought about that. Of course I'll put netting over my windows. Mm -hmm. And you can look right through the netting. It doesn't even spoil the view, but it saves lives. And um, that's just one little tiny way that I feel I can make a difference. And then people say, well, the bird can fly somewhere else or it can find another mate. Wait a minute. What time of year is it? No, I don't think they can find another mate. They're all taken up already. And besides, you can't fly somewhere over there because that's another bird's homestead over there. And he's going to defend that spot. You ain't got a chance over there. Mm -hmm. So basically, it's all wasted. 4,000 miles of flying day and night through the fog and wind and sleet to get here only to clink into a window? I don't think so. See, not on my watch. So that's what I'm saying about responsibility uh, toward the environment is, uh, is really taking care of your own self in the long run. Can you think of a time when you feel like nature or music saved you? Well, yes. Uh, there was one time. Can I tell you this time? Yeah. Uh, I was in Berkeley, California. I was in my 20s. I was hitchhiking around the country by myself as a hippie chick, you know, with a little bandana on my head and sandals, the whole nine yards. Mm -hmm. And I went to Mexico and I, and I took a bus here and there and I played guitar in the back of my little car and I got jobs here and there. And I didn't know what the heck I was going, where I was going, what I was doing with my life. And I got in and out of some really sketchy situations. But I never took drugs, and I never did all that because I was scared to. And um, but anyway, so I'm sort of really at wit's end, not knowing what to do with my life, worried that I might just, you know, fall by the wayside or something, or maybe end up in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I was sitting on a sidewalk, and it was spring. And I heard a hermit thrush singing in the middle of town, in the distance, in the, in the night. They sort of sing at night a lot. And I'm thinking, what the heck is a hermit thrush doing here? And then it faded away, then it came again. And I knew it was singing to me. Hmm. It says, get back to your roots, girl. The music, listen to the song. You're meant to be in Alaska. For whatever reason, get that old hitchhiking thumb in the air and get the heck out of here. And I did. I followed the song all the way to Alaska. And sometimes I'd stop by the wayside going through Canada, hitching through Canada. And uh, I'd hear the birds again, you know, in the background in the woods. I'd hear them singing. And I just feel they called me back home. Yep. That was a lifesaver.
possibly. That's just one time. I was in my 20s, kind of. That's great. Doing my 20s. <laughs> I never forget that. That's one of those stand-up moments, you know. Yeah. I can't believe I hitched all the way from LA to Homer by myself. <laughs> I'd never do that now. Never. What was that experience like? Oh, it was an adventure. I wrote a story about that. Uh, the adventures of a cannery girl. Because as soon as I left home, I pretty much hit the canneries on Kodiak and Sodovia, all around Alaska. I worked in the canneries, the crab canneries, the salmon and the shrimp canneries. I wrote lots of stories about those adventures. Uh, but that was quite an adventure. I got six rides between LA and Homer. I feel like that's <laughs> not as many as I would think. <laughs> no, that's, it's, it's, no, I can't believe it. One ride was all the way from somewhere in the middle of Canada all the way to Homer. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. I talked, they were, it was going to Anchorage, but I talked him into going to Homer, as only a girl can, right? Okay. <laughs> They wanted to go to the end of the North American highway system. I said, hey, if you really want to go there, you have to go all the way to Homer. In <laughs> fact, you have to go all the way to my dad, our dad's our homestead where I grew up, because that is literally the end of as far as you can ever drive. But in those days, that was the actual end of the road. And uh, so that was quite an adventure for them as well. Three guys in a car and me. <laughs> But you see, they had only one thing in mind, and that is go, 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 and don't stop for nothing. So I was safe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Yep. And the, and the cannery days were quite another whole aspect of my life, too. And I wrote a lot of those songs on the album when I was actually working at the canneries. Yep. Well, Mossy, that does it for my questions. You know, I want to... Thank you for chatting with me today. You've had such an amazing life with so many amazing experiences and such a great relationship with nature. Well, thank you. And let, thank you for allowing me to, to talk and kind of go on and on and on and on like I did. I'm sorry if I talked too much. but No, no, it was perfect. I enjoyed it. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Hmm. Well, I think the main thing is it's, I think it's important to stay young inside, to, to, to play, to look at life as an adventure and even, even a game and to just be grateful for everything, even the bad stuff. Just to really not take yourself too doggone seriously because we're all just part of a bigger thing. So kind of stay humble. Yeah, stay humble, keep your head down. <laughs> That's what I would say to somebody if they asked me, you know, what I got out of life. And feel it all, just feel it all, you know. Because mm -hmm. that really makes real music. That's the real music that, that lasts forever, is music that touches, that touches cores, that isn't just superficial or about something a little event here and there but it comes from a deep place for more information about the anchorage museum visit anchoragemuseum.org this podcast was produced by me cody liska for the anchorage museum with additional help 
from Julie Decker. Chattermark's music is produced by Keys Open Doors. <laughs>